you're tuned in to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Powerful ideas to rock your restaurant. Here's your host, Roger Bodwin. Guys, welcome back. I love this episode. I loved speaking with this guest, Ms. Sylvie Gabriele, a wonderful lady in Los Angeles, California, running a truly passionate restaurant called Love and Salt. One of the best things about this episode is it's a true comeback story. In fact, she and her restaurant were named one of the best restaurant comeback stories by Forbes magazine. It's all about a family legacy, a business that was created over 37 years ago by her father and ran in the same location. And then Sylvie jumped in with a brand new idea, brand new concept. And we're talking about the spirit of a great restaurant. What makes it so? The passion of the people, the customers, the staff, the ambiance, the food, just everything that goes into running a truly great restaurant. I know this passion. It runs deep. You're not going to want to miss this episode, so please listen on. Stay tuned. I'd like to thank my friends at Bento Box for bringing you this episode. You know, I've always believed that a great restaurant website brings the restaurant experience to life for the guest before they walk in the door. So let me tell you about Bento Box. They build beautiful, mobile-friendly, and SEO-optimized websites specifically for restaurants. Best thing is, Bento Box gives you control. You can update menus, promote events, share press, and so much more all yourself. Bento Box also gives you tools that attract more customers, grow your business, and drive revenue. You can sell gift cards, merchandise, event tickets, even book private events, all with affordable monthly and annual plans. So you got to check out Bento Box. Here's the link, getbento.com forward slash rock stars. Thanks again to Bento Box. And now on with the episode. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. We're so glad you're here. These are engaging topics that help operators build their brands, rock their profits, and deliver amazing guest service experiences. Today, I'm speaking with Ms. Sylvie Gabriele. She's running a restaurant in Los Angeles. Actually, it's in Manhattan Beach, California. It's an Italian concept called Love and Salt. Welcome to the show, Sylvie. How are you? Thank you, Roger. I'm great. How are you? I'm so glad to have you. We're doing this thing um, called the Independent Operator Series, where we're interviewing, you know, operators that are in the trenches, you know, where I was years ago and where much of our audience is today. And it's all about the key learnings and the best practices. So we're going to cover staff training and marketing and profits and, you know, the, the challenges, the successes, the triumphs. So you are going to be a wonderful guest today. And I'm, I'm going to start where I usually start. And that's, okay, Sylvie, what's your backstory? How did you get into this crazy restaurant business? Take us. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, let's see. So I started, uh, I started at 14, actually. Um, mm-hmm. So I grew up in Manhattan Beach. And uh, my father opened uh, a restaurant called Cafe Pierre in um, 1977, which, which is, Love and Salt, uh, is in the same space that Cafe Pierre was for 37 years. And so we rebranded it. But I grew up in Manhattan Beach and I started, uh, I started, well, actually I probably started earlier because I think I was really, you know, eight years old, standing in the rubble and the dirt of the construction of Cafe Pierre, watching my dad grind away 
you know, getting, you know, building out what was actually the first iteration of Café Pierre, which was Le Prépierre, really like, um, you know, the more, the more affordable opening than Café Pierre would have been, you know, a few years before it. But um, so I, so I grew up in Manhattan Beach and at 14 I started, I didn't want to work with my dad. I started making sandwiches at like the local great sandwich shop, which I still miss called the Annex Deli. Yes. So I did that for like six months to a year and, uh, and then stopped working. And then my dad said, um, you know, why don't you come work with me? And so I started, I started working with him at 16 years old. Um, while I was in high school, I worked through high school and I started as a hostess. And so Cafe Pierre at the time, you know, from when it opened until when I started, you know, it had, it had grown and opened to be more of an upscale fine dining French restaurant. Um, and so when I started, it was an upscale, you know, fine dining restaurant. And I was the hostess and worked, um, you know, three nights a week on the weekends. And then during the week, I'd audit checks and um, audit and be in the office and kind of do the, the work that my dad would hand me. And I would do it because I was getting paycheck. And, um, and so I started when I was 16 as a hostess. And then, um, and then from, you know, I, at 18 years old, when it was legal for me to serve alcohol, I started as a server. And, you know, that was pretty much when I graduated high school. Um, and so it gave me, I was making so much money that it put me through college. So I continued working and I just kind of, being with my dad, growing up, watching him, learning from him, pretty much stayed in the business ever since then. Um, I dabbled in some other things with other career uh, path, you know, paths I was thinking about, but I really um, stayed in the business just um, naturally, I think. Just, just naturally drawn to it, I guess, I would say. So you had the entre entrepreneurial spirit from watching your dad build this restaurant. You worked a variety of positions in it, and then you started making money. And at what point did the light bulb go off and say, you know what, before it was just a job and now it's sort of a passion and it's in my blood and it's a family legacy and here's this 37-year-old restaurant. I mean, at some point, you know, there was a shift or a pivot there. Do you know what that pivotal moment was? I think I was probably, probably just before I went into graduate school um, and to get my master's in business, mm -hmm. uh, I had this, you know, initially I was thinking that I, would gonna, I was going to go on and become a psychologist because I love people. And, uh, you know, as I dabbled in, in the field of helping people in the psychology field, um, realized that's not what I wanted to do. And so I really thought about it. I looked at you know, where we were, I looked at where the family businesses were, because um, we had a few restaurants at that time. And just thought, you know, really, I think what I wanted to do is go and get my master's in business. And it wasn't necessarily with the idea to take over the empire, as it was more just because uh, it was interesting. And I found myself more, you know, even the, the people aspect, but the marketing, the financial, the whole, um, Big, the big picture was really, the strategy part is really interesting. So I went and got my degree, in, you know, my degree. And as I kind of matured and, you know, all along I worked with my father and worked on all the behind the scenes business parts. And after I got my business, my degree, I took over all of it. And, um, and so, and I made the decision also because, you know, funny that 
I believed that it would give me, I decided to stay building, working and building our family businesses because it would give me the opportunity to have children. So I know people laugh. They think you wanted to own restaurants and thought you could have children. But, um, but because, yeah, I believe I could. I believe I could do that better than going into the corporate world. And, I, and it came true. That came true. So I would, I'm going to say that it kind of evolved. But really after business school is when I said, okay, this is the decision. You know, I'm either going to go and build our, my own business or gonna, I'm going to go into the corporate world and build others. So I think I'm more entrepreneurial. I think you're right. You know, it's so interesting. We share that in common. You know, this is a business, especially at the independent restaurant level, that is rarely run by MBAs. But I think that's where the strategy comes in and the systems that are so critically, you know, important. And my story is, you know, I started a restaurant a long time ago, 25 years ago, with absolutely no restaurant experience. And I dove in head first. And I made a lot of mistakes in the beginning. But I had to learn how to make money in this business. But it really revolved around putting systems in place. So that's very interesting, you know, that you've applied an MBA to your business. But I think what's really interesting here is you've transformed uh, a restaurant called Cafe Pierre, built by your father, your family. And you saw a completely different vision for a restaurant. What I'd like, I think what the audience would be interested in knowing is why, uh, you know, a 37-year-old restaurant that's been in business for a very, very long time, a family legacy, did it need a transformation? Could it have continued to operate as Cafe Pierre? Was he retiring and he wanted to, you know, move out and you just had a new idea to transform a business and turn it into something entirely different? Where did that come from? You know, it, I, I, it came from within. I mean, I'm going to say, you know, my dad is, he, he, I don't think there's ever the word retire is in his vocabulary. Oh, great. Okay, um, good. Right? It's hard to retire so, from this business. It really yeah, is. No, no, no. Well, and you know, and he doesn't really, but, but you know, he, when you're in this business, you're kind of, you've got a, a certain drive and a certain passion that seems to just keep, where you just keep going forward and love the challenge and, you know, spin things. And I don't know, it's just, a drive. And so, uh, you know, growth, both my father and I are extremely growth minded. So from day, I, I can say from as young as I can remember, that was my, the way I thought. And my dad is extremely, he's very entrepreneurial and very growth minded as well. That kind of fuels us. And so Cafe Pierre was enormously successful for so many years. It really is really an institution. Mm -hmm. And it yes, developed yes. really deep roots in, you know, Los Angeles and even nationally known. Um, and, you know, lots of awards and we just became very um, rooted. And I don't, neither of us, I don't believe in, you don't throw things out or you don't lose things. You build on them. Yes. And you, um, I'm sorry, I just got interrupted. That's fine. Sorry, I'm in a meeting. We're going to roll. Keep rolling. <laughs> Sorry. It's cool. Um, anyways. Uh, so, yeah. So we're both extremely growth-minded. And uh, it's really about evolving something. And, yeah. sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. I'm really, you know, I love accolades because they just validate what we do. They validate our passion. They validate that we're doing something right, but it's also the best press out there, right? When you get 
accolades from, you know, leading publications, which my restaurants did as well. And you've been named several times. The two that really jump out at me is Los Angeles or LA Magazine um, called you one of the top new restaurants of 2015 with Love and Salt. And then Forbes Magazine, a major publication as well, called you like the best restaurant comeback story ever. So these are like really powerful accolades. So Kudos to you for doing that. I still want to get into the vision you had for Love and Salt versus the old Cafe Pierre. But before we go there, tell me about closing Cafe Pierre and what that did to that 37-year-old tradition and the clientele. And now it's gone and now there's something new coming. Did you lose that whole clientele because it was no. a show? Or did they embrace you because you were part of the family and now let's try love and yeah. salt and see where we that were, goes. You know, we were really worried. We were not yeah. worried, but we were really concerned that, that people would feel a loss and have a hard time embracing. Mm -hmm. And we were embraced with so, with so much love and so much respect. I think it was, I think people really admired, um, the community really admired the courage that we had to make that change. Because who doesn't need a regeneration and a new choice, yeah, new direction in life, right? So we were embraced with so much love. Um, it was fantastic. And I think that's part of why we, we received so many accolades. Because I think everyone, I mean, the popular, generally, the reaction was, wow, what made you guys do this? So yeah, it was a fantastic, fantastic experience. Best thing. Did you have a soft opening with a lot of the regulars from Cafe Pierre because they're opinion leaders and they're the voice of the community and they're longtime patrons and you wanted to gain their trust and their confidence and inspire them with something new? I mean, was that part of your opening strategy? Uh, no. Well, no, not really, actually. I think we, okay. I think we, went, we went with the approach to, I mean, we did a little soft opening and we invited some, you know, some locals that we were close with and that we are close with. But I think we just kind of just opened just and started from new. We wanted to start new and we didn't want to bring in kind of we, any old ideas or we really wanted to start new and set a new expectation. Fresh approach completely. Yeah. Okay, so tell me about your vision. Where did it start? The name, I wanna know all about Love and Salt because I, I love the name. It's quick, it's simple, and it has all these connotations of hospitality. And I won't speak for you. I wanna know where the name came from. <laughs> I'm talking about the vision. Did the name come before the vision or did the vision come before the name? I mean, tell us. Well, I think, no, I think, that, um, I think they kind of came at the same time, but the name didn't, doesn't really reflect kind of the food that we're doing necessarily. And I didn't want the name to. I wanted it to reflect who we are as people and kind of what, what people can expect from us. And um, so the, the, the idea of being Italian inspired came from, you know, our opening team, which was uh, our opening chef and my father and I, and they really wanted to do Italian inspired. And I initially, I was, I, I was a little res, res, reticent about doing that because I wanted I said, I just really want to make sure that we're on the same page, that we're not doing traditional Italian. We're not doing Italian-American um, or American-Italian, whatever. But we, I, I wanted to make sure that this was a fresh take on Italian-inspired. And so they were kicking around Italian names. I'm like, I'm sorry, I can't do an Italian name. I need it to be a very original. I want it to be something that, that speaks volumes as to what we're doing and how we're doing it. And so 
we were kicking around um, names and uh, our, the chef said, what do you think of love and salt? And I was like, yes, yes. It's right, that is, Perfect. it just felt right. And yeah, especially because I was very clear that I wanted something, a name that would emotionally capture people. I think the restaurant business and what we do is all about connection and reaching people at that level. And I wanted to make sure that we were conveying that that is what we do. That is what we're about. We're all about doing things with heart and passion. And so that's how we came up with the name. And yeah. And then Italian inspired is just really kind of, we wanted to do something, a fresh take, especially being in California. We wanted a market driven ingredients. Um, we wanted our take on Italian food, which we do. Wonderful. How many seats do you have in Love and Salt? About, about 88. Okay. Good yeah. Size. And then we have a private dining room that sees about 20. Okay. Do you believe in open line kitchens? Open line kitchens. That is what we have. You do. So we have an open kitchen. Uh, yeah. We didn't used to have an open kitchen. Cafe Pierre was not an open kitchen, but now we have an open kitchen. And, uh, and believe in it, I think you know, it really depends on what you're doing. But I think from what we were, what we were, you know, part of what I want us all to do in the culture of love and salt is, is, is to live openly and be very transparent with, with what we do. And I felt it would be, it was important to have an open kitchen to convey that. I guess that's part of the vibe because we, we heard about where the name came from and I'm still trying to get to, okay, what did you see when you walk through the door, but you still saw Cafe Pierre? It's like you, get, you had to get all past the energy, the ambiance of Cafe Pierre to see what Love and Salt was going to evolve into. Right. So where did that whole vision of ambiance, we talked about the cuisine, we knew it was going to be Italian inspired. So we got the name, we got the cuisine. And, you know, you had a vision for walking through the front door, what you wanted the customer to experience and what they are now experiencing yeah. And what, how would you describe that experience? Walk, walk us through the front door of Love and Salt. Sure. What do you see when you walk through that you want the customer to see? So we, um, you know, we, what we, what guests see when they come in, yes. they see very high ceilings. They see a 25 foot long uh, skylight. There, it's very airy, very bright. I wanted it to be very light. I wanted it to be great during the day and at night. Uh, the color scheme is kind of beachy, overcast, um, definitely something where you feel like you're where you are, you're within the beach and within the area that you are. Very, you know, is it yeah. bright colors at all, like the blues and the turquoises of the water, or is it earth tones, or both? Really, it's really more, I would say it's very, um, no, a little bit, they're, they're not, we don't have bright colors. We have splashes of color here and there, but it's more kind of the grays, um, the, the beige and tan. Um, we have a grand bar, huge marble bar with honed, uh, with a honed finish. Mm -hmm. So it's not glossy. It's not like the old style Italian glossy. It is, uh, it's matte, a matte finish. Yes. So it's grand, it's earthy, um, but it's also pretty, very approachable, kind of modernish design, but little mid-century kind of. Um, so not really, we have some red here, we have some, we have a, a beautiful 
mural of Adalia that was done by a tattoo artist that um, I wanted it to be, I wanted a mural, but I wanted it to be, to be done with by a tattoo artist because of the, I wanted it to be a little bit grungy as well, a little bit, um, a little bit edgy, kind of that's what we're about. So yeah, so you walk in and it's, it's open and it's friendly and it's inviting. It's kind of, most guests come in and they're like, wow. So we, we with the, the bar is kind of integrated with the dining room. So there's not a huge separation. Um, open. So let me paint the picture for the audience. If they've never been to Manhattan Beach, California, what Sylvia is talking about is merging cultures of that surfer beach culture that the South Bay uh, area of Southern California is known for. Big tradition of surfing here, as well as sort of an upscale vibe where you've got a very walkable community with walk streets, with beautiful contemporary million dollar plus houses. And then there's what is called the Strand, which is basically a paved walkway, rollerblade, bicycle lane that goes on the beach and connects all these beach communities. And you've got very, very, you know, wealthy upscale people and you've got surfers and everything in between. And it's all anchored by a pier that juts out into the Pacific Ocean, the Manhattan Beach Pier. It's very famous, very well photographed. And then Sylvie is on that street, which is called Manhattan Beach Boulevard, which runs literally east from the pier into the beach community of Manhattan Beach. And it's such a cool vibe because it's a hangout place 24-7 pretty much. You got people on the beach and on these streets and there's art galleries and there's bars and restaurants and all sorts of culture surrounded by this California beach vibe. So what a cool location you have. And I can totally see how Love and Salt just fits right in with that whole, you know, energy of what's happening here in Manhattan Beach. Very cool. Nice. Thank you. I like that, you know, I mean, Cafe Pierre sounds like, you know, the white tablecloth and the tuxedoed waiters and the very traditional maitre d' that greets you. And here's a more relaxed vibe where everyone is welcome. And this is what we want. It's very approachable. I think you mentioned that. So that's all about ambiance, but that also fits into branding, which you do so well. So maybe this is a transition to you opened your restaurant, you had an idea of how you were going to market it to the community at large and then reach beyond Manhattan Beach and the South Bay to reach people because LA is a foodie town. I mean, every restaurant, you know, cuisine type and brand and anything you're looking for, you're going to find in LA, you know, but here's something that stands out. How did you market the business? How, how are you brand building and sustaining that brand? Well, maybe I'll start with how we started. Um, you know, interesting. I've had done a lot of, we had a lot of talks about Instagram and Instagram for restaurants. And, you know, when we designed the restaurant, we designed it to be very light and uh, photo friendly. And we wanted it to be, um, and so we have, you know, different Instagrammable pieces to the, to the restaurant because it's fun. Um, and that was kind of at the beginning when Instagram started, um, you know, Instagram for marketing, I guess, but not necessarily when the company started, but, but so when we opened, um, we took actually a lot, we, we, we hired a PR firm before, before Cafe PR closed. I wanted to make sure that the messaging was right. It was really important that we, that we package the messaging right. And so we started earlier on and we kind of, the story was goodbye Cafe Pierre, hello, love and salt. And we started that with messaging. And I think messaging is so important. Um, knowing who you are and, and making sure that your, your brand is consistent and cohesive all around before you launch, I think is important. You need, people need to get with who you are like right away. Definitely. And 
So we started really on with a PR firm and, uh, and as we, you know, we worked with them, they, they guided us on kind of strategies with media and, and I would say that was probably, that's really important. I think for restaurants, um, a PR, a really great PR firm to help coach you, guide you. Uh, marketing is not easy for restaurants. I've been doing this for so many years and it was so traditional you know, the direct mailing and the this and the that and Instagram and really completely transformed marketing or like, you know, the direct email marketing and nobody really wants to be spammed. And so it was huge. Um, and we, you know, our Instagram following grew really fast. Um, and so that, you know, the media and the PR, a PR firm that really gets you, it's really important how you pick your PR firm. You really have to have good chemistry with the team that you're working with who really understand you, love what you're doing. That's really important. And so for us, I'm going to say that those two pieces were critical and key for us in our, um, I guess, our marketing approach to start. Did you hire a firm that had prior restaurant clients or experience or did you want a fresh approach with someone who had never worked for a restaurant before? Oh, no. Yes. No, for sure. Restaurant experience media for restaurants is so different than yeah. general media. And so, yeah, for sure. Restaurant Perfect. experience. We, we looked for one that was that, that had success, previous success in launching independent restaurants. There are a lot of PR firms that work in hospitality. I was, we were really specific about making sure that, that they really understood our plight. And, um, and I was so, we, and as soon as we met them, we interviewed several. And as soon as we met the, the firm that we started with, immediately we knew they were right for us. So chemistry is important. Absolutely, for sure. Well, fantastic. So let's move into sort of the staff because I've always been a huge believer that your staff and your customers are brand ambassadors for your business and the staff need to understand your positioning, which we were talking about a minute ago, the image, the aura, what you want to project, all the things you learned from the PR company to launch this brand has to be so well versed and understood by the staff because they're the ones interacting with the customers. So how did that translate to the staff? Yeah, for sure. Well, I think, I think first and foremost, um, you know, we, I, I have a, a really strong value in a, you know, a cultural value for how I run I believe in running a business with people and I take a very people centered approach. Everyone's important. The guest is important, but the staff is important. And our team is, everyone is important and they're important and how we select the staff, um, making sure that their, that their personal values are in alignment with our um, cultural values or our, you know, our, our values for what we want for the restaurant. So when they come in, they already have an intuitive feeling of who we are and what we're trying to do because we're aligned already. So who we bring on is really important. And when we, before we opened, we put together, you know, a whole onboarding kit that really conveyed who we're trying to be, what the message is, what our mission is. Uh, we gave everyone the tools to really be armed with messaging, who, you know, conveying that, carrying the heart and soul of who we are to the guest. Uh, because that's part of who they are and also they really um, love what we're doing and every, our whole staff I mean, I would say half of our staff is still, you know, with us since we opened um, chemistry. Mm -hmm. chemistry But leadership plays such a huge part in that, you know, yeah. you're, I'm sure I get the sense like I was um, You're a leader by example, you know, 
and you're not too important to notice something and fix it in front of the staff, even if that means, you know, cleaning a window or bussing a table. I mean, I did that for the longest time. And when the staff see that you're right in there with them and you're, you're you know, you're doing everything that they would do and you're not too important because you're, you're not just a figurehead, then that really sets the stage for chemistry. And I call that building a dream team. You know, yeah. where it's all about hospitality, family, and fun, where yeah. it's hospitality drives everything, and both the staff and the customers feel like family, and everyone's having fun, and you're right in the, right in the middle of that. Yeah, that's funny. Our, our hashtag on a lot of our posts, Instagram yeah. posts, is, you know, uh, you know, hashtag dream team, or um, teamwork, teamwork makes the dream work, you know, kind of thing. Yes, I like that. Sure. When I, and, you know, to me, if how... If, if I want an approachable restaurant, I have to be approachable. And you can't ask our, 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 our team to be approachable and then have me not be approachable, right? So you're right. You're 100% right. You have to be, you have to live it. So many restaurants out there are, you know, absentee owned, and that's when trouble starts. And it's very hard to get that back. You, one, lose the respect of the staff. You know, they think they're doing all the hard work while you're making all the money, and it, and it just opens up all sorts of avenues for theft and spoilage and waste and sloppy practices. But you still need a balance in your life. You're a smart lady. You got an MBA. You've probably been involved in lots of other projects as well. How do you find the balance and how much time do you actually spend at Love and Salt, you know, keeping the, the fire and the brand vision alive? That's a great question. Uh, well, it helps to live in Manhattan Beach. I will say that. Um, but I think this is, I think that I, I'm going to say that I think my MBA helps a lot. And you'll probably understand this mm -hmm. yourself is that when you really have an under, a really clear vision and understanding of the systems, that the system holds everything together, right? The system. And when there's a breakdown in the system, when you really know it and you've engineered it, you know why there's a breakdown. So it's really not as much work as you think it would be. It's really, and, and I think my, the team, man, our management team, our, our, our whole team, hugely respects that I can identify something so simply, so easily, so ahead of everyone and have a simple fix because I've engineered it that, uh, you know, it's not as hard as you think. And the respect that they have um, for my involvement and my engagement, it's, it's not as time consuming as you think. But that's, of course, all hinging on the systems. Of course. I mean, it's as simple as the old adage, you know, work on your business now. So you decide how or if you work in your business in the future. So it takes all that homework up front of putting the systems in place. But that really creates an exit strategy for your business, whether you want to sell it, whether you want to open new locations, whether you want to franchise it, go on some entirely different career path entirely. And if you've trained your staff well, and if the systems are in place and executed well, then that opens up so much freedom for you as opposed to restaurants that, you know, owner, operator, GMs, they're working 60, 70, 80 hours a week, spinning their wheels, you know, just trying to keep up. And that is the key, the systems. So right. you clearly embrace that and you've made it work in your restaurant. You mentioned a management team. Let's talk about your role versus the management team and how involved you get in day-to-day -day operations. Do you hire the staff personally yourself? Do you just sort of stamp or sign off on someone that a manager recommends? I mean, let's talk about staff, because I want to get into the training 
as well. Yeah. So for, as far as the management team goes, you know, I'm involved in that hiring process because of course the management team is really what's going to carry through the vision. Um, but as far as our, um, our, you know, staff that works in the non-management positions or uh, mm -hmm. I, I give my management team the freedom to hire based on what they know our criteria is. And so we establish what criteria we're looking for. We require, we, we, you know, we go over and we're very clear on the same, we're on the same page as far as what spirit we're looking for, uh, values. Um, so no, I don't believe in micromanagement, but I do believe in communication and systems again. Um, and so no, they do the hiring. And, um, and generally, I'm going to say they're really, really quite good at it. They're, they're all very good at, you know, uh, leading, managing, guiding, um, coaching, giving feedback. So, uh, and they check with me because they, we have an open conversation because we're cheering each other on. Yes. So, so they'll be like, Hey, what do you think of this situation? I'll be like, you know, my, my gut says this, or I kind of think this, or this is what the law says. Um, and, and that's how we work together. And you have a weekly management meeting where we recap the week that just happened. We talk about, you know, the unexpected. We talk about what worked, what didn't work. How do we fix this? That sort of thing. And then we strategically plan for, you know, improvement and big ideas and all that new stuff. Does it happen that way in your restaurant? Yes. Happens weekly. Happens okay. via, you know, communication daily through email, through, um, we have weekly note. We have notes. You know, the greatest thing that we, we found, we've, we've found is the sharing note feature where you can put a team on notes. Um, and so we'll have running notes for different topics. So, you know, in the moment you're in, if you have a thought, put it in your note, in the note, and it's, the team already has it. So it's kind of this constant flow of thoughts. Um, and then we, go, we, we circle back on the notes at the management meeting. We do that weekly. But we're always talking. We're always meeting on different things. You know, we'll have... Um, certain meetings that are that are specific to what we're you know working on um and then we'll have general management meetings as well and then we'll have staff meetings of course too sure so let's talk about training but before training can begin you have to onboard a new employee it, let's just say i know you've got a long standing existing core dream team yeah. staff that we talked about but let's just say there's an open position at love and salt how is that person onboarded brought up to speed in the culture and the mission and the vibe of the restaurant and then the product and restaurant knowledge that's all important and is it ongoing i mean do you have any specific training programs in place how does that whole thing go from start to finish sure so we uh we start with of course posting an ad right mm -hmm. and then the ads responded and then interviews happen and and when we've made a decision to of course, references are checked. Um, and then when we've made a decision that, that we want to move forward with someone, um, there's a training, a pretty, pretty specific training program they go through. Uh, we have everyone go through the same training program as far as service is concerned. Um, regardless of who you are, you understand the steps of service. Um, so you can seamlessly integrate with that, those steps of service. Uh, and then as far as culture is concerned, you know, we talk a lot about uh, what the story is, but then you know, they work specifically with the food um, and we, they learn, we have menu descriptions, they learn about farms, they learn about uh, the food and there's been, spent a lot of time in that. We, of course, choose trainers. We have trainers that, that are, um, 
that are our brand ambassadors who convey who we are. Uh, and then, you know, and then our whole, everyone is really, when there's a new hire, everyone is involved and engaged with, with guiding that new person on how we do things. And so it's pretty tight, I'm gonna say. It's really quite tight. So that's shadowing across the restaurant, pretty much. Right. Practices, the way, the love and salt philosophy, how things are done, what we know and understand, how we impart that to the customer, all key learnings here. That's, that's tremendous. Yes, thank you. Wow. So I'm getting the sense that you have low turnover just based on your approach to running this restaurant and how your management develops people because that is so key. Yes. Sometimes. Uh, well, you know, there's turnover kind of happens in waves as well. Um, I, we don't have a huge turnover. This is true. Um, I, but I'm going to say that I've, you know, it's taken me some wa- a little bit of time to really define what I want, what I believe is the right profile in a manager who, uh, who really is able to successfully manage and convey that culture. So that's been an interesting learning process for me over the years. Um, and I've gotten really clear that um, it's important very important to hire uh, a manager who has been, who has spent a lot of time with very successful restaurants with who have successful systems uh, and who can bring that to the restaurant because independent restaurants don't have a huge budget for training for, for development and all that. So that's a huge key um, point in, in hiring management team. We have a great management team. So one of my biggest pet peeves in restaurants, and it doesn't matter the price point, the location, where I am across the country, I'm I'm frequently quoted as saying nine times out of 10, I get the order taker. They might be friendly and personable, but they got the pad and pen in hand or they commit it to memory, but they're not taking me on what I call the magical journey of that restaurant is. They're not telling me all the things they know that I'm going to enjoy and appreciate. They just assume that because I have a menu in my hand that I'm going to pick what looks good to me. And in so doing, they're losing lots of dollars for that restaurant. They're leaving lots of dollars on the table day in, day out, month in, month out. I mean, I was obsessed with training my staff on service and salesmanship. Does that play a part in how you run your restaurant? The sales portion, the suggestive selling, the education, information, and entertainment piece? Yeah, I think the education piece is important. Um, And what I do, part of what I do as far as salesmanship, I, I really like it to be a soft sell from yes. me to them and from them to the guest. Mm-hmm. Um, because we're not, I don't have a culture of, of uh, you know, a profit-driven culture. But, so what we do is I'm very, um, I, we're very generous with uh, feeding our staff. The staff eats the food all the time they you know loving the food that they mm-hmm. that they are serving is so important and um and so so you know I'll, you're gonna get it you're for, first of all you're not gonna have a server well, that's you're not gonna have a server that's an order taker because that server probably wouldn't last but um and you can really see you can see the difference especially when they've eaten your food because if they've eaten the food and they're not saying, oh my God, you've got to taste this, but maybe try this or other people love it. If they're not super excited about what they're, what they're letting you know about and they've eaten it, I'm like, oh, that, that is certainly not, you know, you're not aligned with our culture. Yeah, but, what's the disconnect there? <laughs> what's that? 
That, that's right. Where's the disconnect? The food is amazing. You love the food, but you're not imparting that to the guest. Right. And so, like, you know, our, we, our, that's the love portion of, of who we are. You've got to give love here. And that goes around, you know. So, anyway. As far as sales is concerned, we do have a staff training for, for wine, um, for liquor cocktails. We have beautiful cocktails. Um, so, we do staff education, for sure. Yeah. Do you have an extensive wine list or just the key varietals that your guests would expect with a few surprises thrown in? How deep is your wine program? Well, definitely not even close to what we had at Cafe Pierre. Cafe Pierre, we got a Grand Spectator Award. Uh, we have a, a, an award of excellence from the Wine Spectator. Uh, so I would say we have about 60 different wines, 60, 70 different wines. And our approach to the wine list is fundamentally, you know, we are looking for, we, we serve natural and organic wines. Okay. And uh, we, we both kind of look at neighborhood wines being domestic California wines and then also Italian wines. Uh, and then, you know, we'll have some international wines, you know, French, Spanish. Um, we've had some Greek, some, you know, wines from Austria. But the, that, that's just a small portion of our list because we like to, you know, we like to fun, you know, have fun, fine wine, find fun wines and share that. Uh, so, so definitely um, a creative list, a curated list, but not super deep in terms of uh, offering um, broad, but not super deep in terms of uh, selection, I guess. No, not selection, but you know, number of, of labels we, we have. Sure, how about the beer program? You do draft beers as well as bottles? Is it yes. craft Well, we don't have bottles yet. We've been talking about doing bottles, but we have a, a, a draft system. Mm -hmm. uh, we have eight taps. And um, more recently, our chef has been getting involved with, uh, with beer selection because he loves beer. Um, so that's been fun to have him involved with that. Um, yeah, so we have eight taps. We've been talking about doing bottles, but you know, it's fun. Taps, tap service is good. Um, bottles are fun, but tap service, I mean, for our restaurant, since we don't really need to have a huge beer program, it's nice space saving to not have a bunch of bottles. Absolutely. Um, that's kind of, but we've simplified it that way. Yeah. Okay. And you have a specialty craft cocktail list. So yes. bartenders with flair that are creating, you know, are they a good mixture of the standard cosmopolitans right up to specialty beachy drinks like you just came in off the beach and you want something tropical feeling i mean but it's all right. over the place right yeah so we have a um, we have a, a a bar consultant who's worked with us since we opened i absolutely love this person vincenzo marianelli and uh he is so he's like part of the family but we also have a bar manager who she is super passionate about developing cocktails and so she's taken a little bit more of a lead more recently in developing cocktails um and we have three part store list we opened with two parts well actually that's not true three parts we started with a a, a classic cocktail list which is like your very traditional some italian traditional uh, you know an aperol spritz or or you know um a manhattan you know something very traditional and then we've had a section called the classics which were all craft cocktails and then we we had a section called mocktails and these are uh non-alcoholic drinks that we designed to be more um 
to be more fun um, and kind of be the, the non-alcoholic drink um, replacement. And in our recent kind of evolution, we have evolved to have classic cocktails, the love and salt classics, which are kind of the big hits over the years. And then we have the, the seasonal section, which is kind of what we do seasonally to kind of um, create cocktails. And then we still have the mocktails. Yeah. Let's, let's shift gears now and talk about profit. That word came up uh, a moment ago. And obviously with the analytical mind and the strategic approach that you have in the MBA, are you um, as profit minded and as profit driven with this restaurant as I was running mine? I mean, where, how do you balance quality perceived value to the customer and profit? You know, all of those things uh, in terms of how you purchase and how tight you run your inventory and knowing exactly what your prime costs are and all these things. And, you know, literally dialing in your profit versus making decisions off the cuff like so many operators do, which, right. you know, I certainly don't recommend. But, you know, what's your approach to profit? So, you know, uh, great question. Uh, so my approach is more quality of life, I'm going to say. Um, quality of life, financial management. So, so, you know, I, and, and I, I have to, I do have to say that I am super passionate about technology in my business. I, I have kind of searched high and wide for star technologies that, that, that really, um, integrate everything so that I'm able to control financially and have the data that I need to be able to, to manage financially at a glance. So, so what I do is uh, I'm very tight with our numbers. I watch them very close. We have our, our, our team works with a labor budget um, and they, they work with it closely. We we monitor it weekly. Um, we have target, our target, you know, our target cog, cogs. Um, and then I watch all of our expenses very closely. We, we run a very tight ship. I do that for the health of the business. I do that so that we can all uh, be happy and enjoy what we're doing. And, and yeah, and it, so it makes it worth it for everyone. Um, so we're pretty healthy financially. the sweet spot. You know, there's a food, beverage, and labor cost sweet spot, yeah. you know, where you're absolutely employing your resources at its most efficient point based on a given level of sales because you've got a track record and you pretty much know from the day week on week what your business is going to be and if you can stay within that sweet spot with very little if any deviation then you've got a very healthy business yes well great that's that's tremendous mm -hmm. Um, what advice do you have, Sylvie, to other independent operators? What have you learned along this bumpy road of restaurants, or it can be certainly, you've had a lot of successes. I think we were talking earlier before the recording started about this isn't just about successes and triumphs. It's also about, you know, decisions we've made that we may have regretted, mistakes we've made, costly mistakes sometimes. And I want to get into Farm Stand because you had another concept that was a non-GMO project restaurant. I don't know if this is an appropriate time to talk about that or if you want to answer that first question first and then we talk about Farm Stand. I'll leave that up to you. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I've been doing this for a lot of years and I've, um, I'm going to say five restaurant brands and a catering company that I have, uh, owned, operated, we'll say. 
And one of them was Farm Stand, um, a love, a, a pro, a definitely a love project. And uh, that was, uh, we opened that before the farm to table movement and we called it Farm Stand and it was the urban, urban country food. And we were really creative with our food. And it, it was an overnight attraction for sure. Um, and yeah, so it was to, uh, a restaurant of love for, and it evolved over the years. And what I, as, I, as we were learning more about food and ingredients, we began to become, we became passionate about non-GMO food. Yes, yes. And the difference between, you know, really sourcing food from farms and versus kind of the food chain yeah. that is a little bit more, what's that? Sustainable practices. Right. And sourcing is really, was, became, you know, a very interesting. It was, it's probably one of my most fun, I think, um, experience I had was, you know, we, Farm Stand became the beta project for the non-GMO project and the restaurant beta because they don't they don't uh they don't uh certify or verify restaurants so we they were trying with us to see how the process would go so i essentially achieved being almost 100 percent non-gmo which is hugely um a huge accomplishment i'm going to say because of the fact that sourcing animal products non-gmo at the time that we were doing it very hard to do Okay. Not so hard now, but still hard. But and you pioneered this. I mean, you were part of the movement early before it became yeah. a movement. And what you know, around, what's that? What year would that have been? 2010. Okay. All right. Almost a decade ago. Yes. Yeah. And so it was interesting because this whole rhetoric that, you know, non-GMO foods are more expensive. I did not find that. It was really exciting and super fun adventure. Um, our food costs didn't really increase that much. So, but anyway, so we, um, we did that with farm stand and, uh, and you know, we were talking earlier about, I think it's one of the things that I, I, I really, I'm happy. The decisions that we I've made over the years with businesses, opening, selling, closing them, you know, you get really emotionally involved in, in what you do and you love what you're doing, but you have to know when it's time for a change and when it's time to move on. For sure. And you're, you being overly attached to a brand or to what you're doing can really cause failure beyond, even if you were a success to start. So with Farm Stand, you know, about 10 years in, uh, we decided it was time for us to sell and move on to another project. And so I developed our catering company from that, from Farm Stand and sold the restaurant and did it just at the right time really for, for I think for the times that we were in. And I think it's really important to know in the life cycle of your business, when is, when is, when do you invest more and grow and where are your growth opportunities and when do you close up that what you're doing and do something new yeah those can Super be really important. painful very heart-wrenching decisions because by nature when we're in this business based on passion 
and family and you've done this for a long time and then all of a sudden you've got to suddenly pivot and do something different we're so close to things sometimes and it's right. very hard to take a step back and say okay i need a fresh perspective on this because i'm so deeply invested in it right. so yeah and i don't know if you can tell the audience how you reach that that epiphany decision where it's just time to go it's either a gut feeling maybe for some people or the numbers tell you that it's time to pivot and do something different or your customers are telling you you know something just i mean it's different in every case clearly but you reach that point and it was the right decision at the right time right yes hmm. and i think you know it's, it's a combination of all of that you know you have a gut feeling and something saying to you, you know what, I think this, the life of this is over. Um, and it may not be that you can't develop it, develop it further. It could be that your passion about what you're doing needs to go a different direction because you know, we're all living it. It's all our own personal lives, right? So it could be not even necessarily the life of the, the brand or could it grow or evolve into something else? Maybe could, but it's partly a gut feeling as to really knowing where you are in a life cycle. Um, and then also mm -hmm. really being aware of what the messages, messages are you're getting from the various places, you know, your guest, um, the city with the way that the area is developing. I mean, there's so many different, so much feedback you can get that tells you that guides you. Um, so I think it's really, there's analysis involved, there's gut feelings involved. But I think more and most importantly is just being growth minded. When you're growth minded, you know there's always another opportunity. If you're in and you're, you know, and you're paying attention and you're making wise calculate and taking wise calculated risks, there's always another opportunity. This is true, absolutely. Yeah. And it's not that one door shuts and it's gonna shut forever. Something always opens up beyond what you, you know, even hope for. And sometimes we surprise ourselves by making a decision and seeing where that decision leads, even though you didn't have that, you know, you can't see around corners, of course, but it's amazing how life works that way. Yes. Just having, you know, having the courage and the conviction to move beyond something that was in your comfort zone, maybe. Right, right. Yeah. Well, that's the adventure. It is. Yeah. Life's a journey, not a destination. Right. And you have to live that. What is your best advice, Sylvie, to other independent operators that are running restaurants right now? Um, it could be anything at all. What, what first strikes you when I ask you that question? What is your best advice to running restaurants? Best advice, the thing that strikes me the most is get, uh, get all the technology you can that integrates to give you key data. That is the thing to do right now because the, the faster you have it, financial information, the quicker you can make decisions to, you know, strategic financial and business decisions to help you stay ahead. Are we talking about both front and back of house solutions here for technology? Yeah. Yes. It sounded like you implement everything from, you know, maybe online ordering systems to back of house inventory software, like everything, like a full suite of systems across your restaurant. Yes. And they all speak to each other. Okay. It's all networked. All and I, 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 um, I, I spent a lot of time, I spent probably a year researching all of this from, you know, from, from our point of sale system, our, to our reservation book, our reservation communicates with our point of sale. 
Um, our point of sale communicates with our, um, our business intelligence information. Our business intelligence information communicates with our accounting. Um, our online orders are seamlessly integrated into our POS, so they come straight through. All of that is so important and it's worth the money spent. For example, you know, our, um, our, schedule, our, our scheduling uh, technology that we recently implemented, although we're, we're looking at changing to another solution, but what it does is, is it controls um, the clock. So you, a staff person can't clock in early without manager override, or um, it, it automatically integrates with the, the, the time clock. So I can get real-time data as far as who's running overtime, who's getting close to overtime. You know, those key controls of those areas that are so easy, that go so easily out of control are golden and they're worth the money because they save you the cost, the cost of them. You know, you gain more than, they definitely have their return on investment for sure. So I, I, I'm very passionate about technology. Do you care to share any of the companies that you've partnered with in tech? Sure, happily. Uh, so our point of sale system, which actually ends, is kind of the heart and soul of our, uh, our systems, um, and we changed to them about a year and a half ago, was Toast. And they are a cloud-based system. Cloud-based is really important because it gives, it's an open software system. So there's a lot of other software companies that can, that can integrate with it. Whereas the more legacy systems, for example, Micros or um, Aloha or any of those systems, they're very closed. You can't get in, you know, third-party software to integrate with them. So essentially, your systems aren't integrated. That is key for us as an independent operator, key. So yeah. Toast is one that integrates with hot schedules. It integrates with C2IT. C2IT is our business intelligence solution. Um, what else we use? Oh, another software that absolutely is an absolute game changer for the independent restaurant is Plate IQ. What it does is it does line item extraction. The key part of what it does, there's other things it does, but it does line item extraction for your invoices. So you scan them, it extracts the line items. So now you have all your pricing data at your fingertips, where we didn't have that before. So you know, bigger chain restaurants, they, can, they have such powerful relationships with their vendors that the vendors will bend over backwards and you know, it will integrate system there into their POS and they can do that. But independents never had that before. This is true. This is all game changing. And like you said, there's such a return on investment, but it's also about efficiencies and running a strong, you know, seamless operation. And again, you, it's key that everything sort of talks to each other as opposed to having, you know, 15 different pieces of software. That's all you got to look at this and then you got to look at this and no one has time for that. So you've found a way to integrate everything. I think that's tremendous. Yeah, thank you. Oh man, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. And it's and it sort of brings me back to those golden days of running restaurants that I do miss uh, very, very often now that I've transitioned out of owning restaurants. So I wouldn't be surprised if someday I don't jump back into owning restaurants again. <laughs> Stay yeah. tuned, everyone. Um, Sylvie, thank you so much for joining me as a guest. Thank you, Roger. Appreciate it. It's been fun. That was the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.
Thanks for listening to, to the, the Restaurant, Restaurant Rockstars, Rockstars Podcast. For lots of great resources, head over to restaurantrockstars.com. See you next time.